Hello, this is Kalia in 2020. What you are about to hear is the remastered version of the episode that you clicked on. Why? Well, it turns out that when I started this podcast, I got some incorrect information regarding copyright law and fair use policy. After nearly two years of making content, this oversight was brought to my attention. There was mild panic, lots of guilt, and then a few fervent nights doing research. It seems we might exist in this gray, nebulous area of fair use for critique and commentary, and thus our use of a teeny tiny bit of the music from the soundtracks of the movies that we are critiquing and commenting on might be allowable. But then again, it might not. So a few things. One, I don't want to be a jerk, even accidentally. Two, I think it's important to acknowledge when you mess up. But three, and this is key, I think acknowledging your mess up isn't enough. You have to rectify the situation if possible. And guess what? It's totally possible to go back into these old episodes and clip out the maybe legal, maybe just slightly crappy bit of audio and replace it with a bit of music created just for me by the same composer and performer who made us our theme music, which is what I'm going to do. And since I can't help but tinker just a smidge, I might clean up a teeny tiny bit of audio noise while I'm in there. I mean, I've learned a lot over the last two years, and who knows, you might be stumbling upon this podcast feed years from now. So why should your present day ears be punished? Because way back in time, I hadn't yet found the noise reduction button. Anyway, without further ado, here is the podcast you came here for. Just slightly better. Thanks for listening. It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly will edify It's the Pages of Popcorns podcast. Jennifer and Kelly are gonna talk, so you'd better damn well listen. Hello, and welcome to the Pages and Popcorn podcast, the podcast where we, Kelia! And Jennifer, two huge book nerds, talk about movies based on books as well as the original source material. Today we will be discussing Mary Poppins, the 1934 novel by P.L. Travers, which was adapted for the 1964 award-winning movie musical by the same name. Yes, there is a more modern remake. More on that later. But first we want to remind you of all the ways that you can connect with us on the internet. As you know, we have a webpage where you can find sources, references, and updates about the show. We now have a page on our website with the list of our upcoming book and movie combos so you can read and watch along ahead at home. So, heads up, we would love to hear your thoughts for an upcoming community episode. Do you agree with our interpretations? Do you feel strongly that we have missed a key point or forgot an essential theme? Now is your chance to let us know. Send your emails or voice memos to us directly at pages at popcornpodcast at gmail.com. You can also connect to us via our Facebook page or our Twitter, although, to be honest, I don't use Twitter nearly as much as Facebook. So either way, type Pages and Popcorn Podcast into your search bar and you'll find us. If you like what you hear, if you like what you see, please feel free to share us, retweet us, and rate and review us on places like iTunes. This will help us grow our audience, which will help us be able to do more episodes. As always, we want to send a special thank you to our patrons for their ongoing support. $1 a month, or 5 if you're feeling especially generous, helps us keep this going. And for our patrons at either level, we will have a special supplemental episode later this month that discusses the modern 2018 remake of Mary Poppins along with the 2013 Saving Mr. Banks movie. We hope to start having more regular supplemental episodes for our patrons in the coming months, and those will be sent to our patrons as they become available. 
So again, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash pages and popcorn podcast. Okay, that's it for the intro. Now let's get to the episode. This is definitely a classic. The movie's a classic. The book is a classic in a different way. So here's my information about the book. Mary Poppins is actually the first in the series. It starts off with the hardly ever used second pronoun tense. So if you wanted to find number 17, Cherry Tree Lane, you would do so X, Y, and Z. This is a bold choice in how to start a novel. But anyways, okay. The book introduces us to this very English Banks family, consistent of Mr. and Mrs. Banks, their children, Jane, Michael, and baby twins, John and Barbara. There is also a household of servants, despite them not being considered particularly well off. When the children's nanny, Kate and Nana, storms off in a huff, the poor Mrs. Banks is beside herself because how could she possibly care for her children without help? Anyway, Mary Poppins arrives at their home, complete with her traveling carpet bag, blown in by a very strong east wind. She steamrolls Mrs. Banks, who's very concerned with appearances, and accepts the job, agreeing to stay until the wind changes. The children soon learn that Mary Poppins is stern, vain, and usually cross. However, she seems to have magic. Among the things that Jane and Michael experience are a tea party on a ceiling with Mr. Wig, a trip around the world with a magic compass, the purchase of gingerbread stars from the extremely old Mrs. Corey, a meeting with the bird woman who sells crumbs outside the church, a birthday party at the zoo among the animals, and a Christmas shopping trip with a star named Maya from the Pleiades cluster in the constellation Taurus. Also, Mary herself goes on a magical day in the country with Bert the Matchman by jumping into his sidewalk chalk picture, and the twins have an interlude with a sparrow. More on that later. There's also a few other little vignettes, a story about a dancing cow, some inter-neighborhood drama involving a dog. In the end, it is what perhaps is the most iconic image associated with Mary Poppins. She opens her umbrella as the west wind carries her away. Many of the chapters or many stories have lessons in them, and a few are very quaint or very clever. Through it all, Mr. and Mrs. Banks, the household, and Bert play very, very, very peripheral sorts of characters, and Mary is again shown to be cross-strict, very, very vain, and generally not overly loving or kind. She never acknowledges that she is magical and acts all upset and insulted when the kids try to ask her questions. She's belittling and manipulative. And did I mention vain? I lost count on how many times we are told about how often she stares at herself in windows and mirrors. A few of the little stories that I want to talk about later, so spoilers that are not in the film. Alfred the pampered dog with the overly fussing mother figure who rebels and takes up with a dog from the wrong side of the tracks and basically is like, accept my new dog friend or I will run away forever. Totally a coming out story. The twins, the babies who can communicate with birds and the wind and the sun, but as they grow older and they will gain their teeth and lose that form of communication despite wishing and vowing otherwise. It was very poignant. The dancing cow story. She's happy and content in her pasture, but then a star falls on her and she can't stop dancing and so she's miserable. So she gets advice from the king who tells her to jump over the moon, which she does, and then the star falls off. So now no more dancing. But now the regular boring life in her pasture is ruined and she leaves her now boring pasture, heads off to wander the world looking for another fallen star. Of course, this has all sorts of levels about complacency and wanting what you don't have and seems also like an allegory for the Banks kids and Mary Poppins in general. But we will talk on that later when we talk about themes. <clears throat> so that's the book. And then came the movie about 30 years later. And not just a movie. 
but a movie musical as well. And fair warning, I love this movie as a kid, and I can pretty much still recite the whole thing by heart to this day, but because I'm a serious podcaster, I watched it again to prep, and I had my seven-year-old watch it. She liked it, not as much as me, and I apologize in advance for any singing that happens. Okay, are we ready for my recap? I know you're excited. Are you excited? I almost I almost wrote this recap in verse form to sing, and then I thought, Oh, that would have been cute. The quarantine has not stolen all of my brain yet, so it's cool. It's cool. (laughs) The movie is vastly different in tone, and really the only parts that are the same is that there is a family, the Banks, in England, who need a nanny, and when one arrives via some magic, it is a person called Mary Poppins. Most of the rest in theme and tone and characters is basically everything is different, and they're singing and dancing. So, here we go. It was a 1964 American musical fantasy film. It was Mary Poppins. It was Disney. It was like the pinnacle of Disney. It is the crowning live action achievement with animation and it's amazing. We start off with Bert, a jack of all trades, Dick Van Dyke, playing music in the park. He gives us a brief intro in time and place and breaks the fourth wall. It is Edwardian London in 1910 and we soon see George Banks returning home to Cherry Tree Lane to learn from his wife Winifred that Katie Nana has left their service after their children Jane and Michael have run away for the fourth time this month. They are returned shortly by the constable who reveals that the children were chasing a lost kite. The children ask their father to help build a better kite but he dismisses them. Taking it upon himself to hire a new nanny because apparently everybody else sucks, he advertises for a stern no-nonsense nanny. In contrast, Jane and Michael present their own advertisement in a kinder, sweeter little song about a kinder and sweeter little nanny. Winifred tries to keep the peace. Mr. Banks is not having any of it and rips up this little advertisement that the children wrote and throws the scraps into the fireplace. But of course, the remains of the advertisement magically float up and out of the chimney into the night air. Also, to worth noting here, the neighbor's ship-themed house sets off an explosive charge on the hour the family has to constantly hang tight to their valuables and possessions. Oh, and also, Winifred is a suffragette. The next day, a number of elderly sour-faced nannies arrive outside the Banks' home, but a strong gust of wind blows them all away. This was my daughter's, like, second favorite part of the film, by the way. And Jane and Michael witness a young nanny descending from the sky using her umbrella. Presenting herself to Mr. Banks, Mary Poppins calmly produces the children's restored advertisement and agrees with its request, but promises the astonished Mr. Banks she will be firm. Mr. Banks is so puzzled and verklempt that he basically allows himself to be talked into hiring her. She convinces him it was his original idea. She meets the children by sliding up the staircase banister, unpacks a series of things from her magic carpet bag, and then helps them magic tidy up, magically tidy up the nursery by snapping her fingers before they head out for a walk in the park. Outside, they meet Bert, who today is working as a, someone who's drawing chalk pictures on the sidewalk. Mary Poppins uses her magic to transport the group into one of the drawings. While the children ride on a carousel, Mary Poppins and Bert go on a leisurely stroll. Together they sing A Jolly Holiday, Bert flirts with her, there's some penguins, my daughter's first favorite part of the film, and then eventually the duo meets up with the children and they ride those little carousel horses right off of the carousel. They rescue a hawks from a fox hunt, and then there's a horse race, and Mary Poppins wins, and it's very dream-like quality with dream-like logic. Um, and then, to describe her victory, Mary Poppins uses the nonsense and yet oh-so-famous word, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, 
The outing is ended when a thunderstorm dissolves the Bert's drawings and the group has to go home. So that night, Mary pretends that the adventure never happened and she gives the kids magical medicine. Hers tastes like rum punch, a joke that I totally did not get as a child. On another outing, the three meet old Uncle Albert, who's floated up in the air because of his uncontrollable laughter, and they join him for a tea party on the ceiling, and they tell jokes. This is a lot like the book. Afterward, Mr. Banks becomes annoyed at the household's cheery atmosphere. He's not a fan of the joke that Michael tells him about the man with a wooden leg named Smith. What was the name of his other leg? Ha 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 Oh, he's also not a fan of the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious word, and he threatens to fire Mary Poppins, but she manipulates him, instead taking the children to his workplace, the bank, the next day. The children are excited. Mary tells them to look for the bird lady. Michael brings his money, intent on buying bird seed or crests or whatever it is that she is selling to feed the birds, but the next day, Mr. Banks takes them to the bank and tries to show them off to his bosses. The children meet Mr. Dawes. Mr. Dawes aggressively urges Michael to invest his tuppence in the bank, ultimately snatching the coins from Michael's little hand. Then Michael demands them back. Other customers hear him shouting, give me back my money. And then suddenly they're demanding their money. And then suddenly there's the bank run. Jane and Michael flee the bank, getting lost in the East End until they again meet up with Bert, who's now a chimney sweep, and he escorts them home. This three of them, along with Mary Poppins, now venture through the chimney onto the rooftops where they have a song and dance number with other chimney sweeps, which spills out onto the bank's homes. And an enraged Mr. Banks comes home and receives a phone call from his employers. He's pretty much been sacked, but he has to go in person to get the bad news. Bert overhears and tells him, well, he should spend more time with his children before they grow up. Jane and Michael give their father Michael's tuppence in the hope to make amends. Mr. Banks walks through London to the bank. It's all very grim and dour. He's giving a humiliating dressing down. His boutonniere is ripped. His hat is broken. And he's fired. Then he looks at the tuppence in his hand. And he thinks about his children. He has an epiphany. He blurts out, supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. He tells Michael's wooden leg named Smith joke and happily heads home. Mr. Dawes mulls over the joke and finally understanding it, floats up in the air laughing. The next day, the wind has changed, meaning Mary Poppins must leave. A happier Mr. Banks is found at home, having fixed the children's kite, and he takes the family out to fly it in the park. The Banks family meets Mr. Dawes' son, Mr. Dawes Jr., who reveals that his father died laughing from that joke. Oh no, Mr. Banks is very sorry, except that then he becomes very happy, because now Mr. Dawes Jr. says he's never seen his father happier, and he reemploys Mr. Banks as a junior partner. With her work done, the family unit connected and flying a kite. Oh, by the way, Bert is now selling kites. Mary Poppins ends the movie by flying away. The end. Very well done. Okay, so where do you want to start? So it's a classic for a reason. <laughs> I, I have to know, had you ever read the book or did you grow? Okay, well, I'll just show. I'm sorry, I'm so excited. I love this movie so much. <laughs> Spoilers. This is my favorite of all the things that we've watched. <laughs> I love it. Okay, I want to jump in really quickly. Uh, so I was worried that this is going to be one of those nostalgia-side moments. And I've had a few of them. So when I went back and watched The Sound of Music, it was a lot slower than I remembered. You know, other stuff feels duller. And I remember watching this a bunch. And so I was going to kind of multitask while watching the movie. And I stopped. I started watching the movie and I forgot how charming it is. It's just adorable. Oh my gosh, this movie is so good. Like, as a kid, um, I don't know if we always watched 
the 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 second part like the the whole bank and then the kids in the bank and the run on the bank and then mr banks being sad and and having that heart to heart with bert like i have a feeling that as a child i kind of drifted off um sometimes during like the step in time or i would get so excited during the chimney that i would just like be dancing and dancing and then like kind of block <laughs> out the rest of the movie until they get to the let's go fly a kite part but but seriously yes this movie is the shits. I'm just saying. It's the bomb. I love it so much. So, I I really love uh, when you rewatch a childhood movie and you realize that there are these two various levels. You know, there's the child level, there's the adult level, and they can both speak to you. Yes, yes. There's definitely stuff that in a, that I got this time as an adult because I haven't watched it probably since I was a teenager. My sisters are quite a bit younger than I was, and so when they were real little and they were watching it over and over again, I was a teenager. And I still freaking loved it as a teenager. I would just sing Mr. Banks's. In fact, I mean, I have been singing Mr. Banks's song and Mrs. Banks's songs like my entire adult life. I will just break into those songs. I love them so much. So, okay, knowing all of that, um, at one point while buying books for my daughter for her room, um, I found the Mary Poppins series somewhere at a bookstore and I was like, oh, I guess it was based on a book, which I didn't know. And so I bought them and uh, I read, I think like the first chapter, not too long after that. And I went, oh, this is different and not really for her age. She was like two or three at the time. And so I kind of just stuck it up on the shelf. And so when we were going to do this, I pulled it off the shelf and read it and holy freaking smokes. It is way different. It is not only way different, but it is a downer. And I, you know, sometimes they say the book is better than the movie. A lot of people say that about a lot of things. And a lot of times they're right, but sometimes they're wrong. <laughs> I'm totally skipping to the end, but this adaptation, I, it, you almost have to look at it as a completely different thing. And, and, I don't even know if you can compare them. The themes are so different. The morals and messages and meanings are so different. The The characters are so different. I mean, there's really not a whole lot of overlap. And I know in our supplemental episode, we're going to talk about how the adaptation came to be and, you know, all of that stuff. So I don't, I really don't want to get bogged down into that. But I will say that it is, it is, they're very, very, I think if I had read this book without the, the love in my heart of the movie, I would have been like, yeah, this was fine. It has some really good, interesting things and it had some good themes and, I, and like there was some interesting aspects and the little part about um, the the twins and the, and the, the, swall, the, bird. the bird, that whole chapter is just beautiful and I love it so much. It really stands it can, completely on its own. It could stand completely on its own and be its own little short story, just beautifully done and very, sentimental um but gosh the book in comparison to the movie just it's falls flat on its freaking face a very very critical undertone <sighs> yeah. and there's none of that in the movie uh so mary poppins uh so mary, movie mary poppins she's got chris bell she feels like she's in the same class as the banks even though she's a a, a governess and a servant the book though she's got this very thinly veiled contempt for the banks family because they're middle class and they kind of want to be better and she just has none of it and there are certain things i really love about her character because she's very plain and she's also very vain oh my. and that's such an interesting combination 
And she's not lovable. She's not nice. She's not kind. She's usually kind of angry. She's very cross. She's yeah. Just, she's just cross. Uh, but she's also very loved by the children because she is magical. Right. Okay. So here's an interesting thing. So in the book, Mary is like all about good behavior and disobedience is definitely punished. The kids like seriously like her though. She's super distant, but, but uh, okay. Her, their parents are distant and neglectful and she's not those things. So it's almost like the book is saying, you know what? Like you can be like a total strict, not overly loving parent as long as like parental figure, as long as you're present in the children's life, that's what they need. They need someone who's present and it doesn't matter how loving you are. Do, do you know what I mean? Like, I think it's making some very interesting points about what, what this author believes that children want or need in, in their, in their family structure. So I, I have a slightly different take. Um, English culture does tend to have a little bit more emotional distance. Uh, growing up in the era where your parents were kind of supposed to be your friend, and thankfully my parents didn't do that, you forget how important boundaries and discipline are for children because it is a sense of security and a sense of safety. I'm not so sure that I have forgotten that, and I, I, well, I'm going to take exception to... So I'm not talking about every parent. I'm talking about... Uh, trends in parenting. So for a while, this was a trend. Uh, and it turned out to be kind of a disastrous trend. So that's one of the things when I look at this book, it's the children are happy because yes, there's somebody who's present, but also they kind of know where they stand. There aren't that many kind of questions. And that allows them to have a little bit more freedom to explore the awe and wonder that she brings, because there is kind of that anchoring point. Otherwise, it would feel a little too airy-fairy. I agree with half of what you just said. You said that they know where they stand, they thrive on the boundaries and the consistency, yes. But then the second part of what you said about how like then they're allowed to explore, the, like she is magical, but also freaking gaslights the hell out of them. I know, that's, and she does it in the movie too. And that's like the main thing I really don't like okay. about Mary Poppins. I will say though, the in, the, in the movie, she she does it in a gentle teasing way it's kind of like how when my daughter's like what are we having for dinner and i'm like we are having nails that i have put into a cardboard box and then i added some salt and then i put some hot sauce because that's what you like to eat right nails with hot sauce and she's like no mommy what are you making and i'm like well i'm gonna be a really mean mommy and make you eat pizza tonight and then she was like oh i love you mommy thank you so much so like there's like that kind of like play right that i definitely got a sense of in the movie in the book though it wasn't teasy it wasn't play she never like ever really acknowledged and and she's yeah just a dick about it that's kind of part of her personality is that she's magical without ever having to acknowledge her own magic right and so the movie she's very self-aware that she's this magical creature definitely and she she leans into it and and yeah, so I, I get the idea that in the book, we are being told, like, kids need, need boundaries, kids need discipline, kids need security, yada, yada, yada. But um, I don't think that that, I think you can have that and still have whimsy and love and gentleness, because obviously when they adapted it, 
they had boundaries. Spit spot. We are not a codfish, you know, and like they had things and rules like we need to put your coat on and do this and do that. And but we also had whimsy and love and love for, and the parents, you know, the, the the lesson of the book. I don't know what the fuck the lesson of the book was, but the lesson in the movie was hey, take a second and enjoy the childlike things in life and like the parents both mellowing out and like seeing their children and like kind of, um, you know, enjoying their children and not being so wrapped up in their own stuff. That is an amazing lesson that you get. You still have responsibilities. You still have boundaries and discipline, but you can still have fun with it, which is what the movie seemed to be saying. Did not get that in the book at all. I just got this very oh. judgmental thing about per parents and... This comes off as a very interesting thing about uh, Travers, the author. Mary Poppins, and sometimes when you learn about the author, does feel like a self-insert. I don't want to do too much with that, but she is somebody who did not like sentimentalism. And that's one of the things that really bothered her about the, the movie is, well, this isn't Mary Poppins. Mary Poppins would not do that. Uh, so there, there are some certain cantankerous ways that do cross boundaries. Right. And I, I mean, okay, which is why I think that, like I said before, you almost have to look at them as two very different things because they are very different things. This isn't like the big screen, you know, version of her book. This is a completely, I mean, there were no song and dance numbers in the book. There's no, you know, and, and the type of magic is different and the, who the parents are and what their deal is and everything is. And the fact that the book is, you know, very like mocking of the British middle class and how they're raising their children that not really the same kind of deal going on in the movie at all but so that I mean fun little fact about Travers okay she did not think that this should have been a children's book yeah I've read that too and I feel yeah, like you know so, you you are always very quick to point out death of the author and stuff and I feel like this is definitely one of those times where that it's super appropriate well, you know, there's also just putting things into context of she meant this to be social criticism. She didn't mean it to be this childhood fantasy, whereas you have Walt Disney, who is the master of childhood fantasy, coming by and going, wow, these are these really cute little magical tales that I can make into this really cute little children's film. So this is where a lot of that disconnect comes in. Right. And, and, that, and that's fine. I think that that is fine. And I know we will talk more about that in the next episode of our show but that's why i really think you have to look at them as like almost two completely different things because they had different goals you know one was yeah. you know making these social criticism points and one was like let's have singing and dancing and freaking dick van dyke and julie andrews and animated penguins <laughs> you know so it almost feels like an unfair comparison um I, but so I want to make one more note about the book, and then let's get into the movie. Okay. Because I think you're really dying to get into that part. Go ahead. So one of the, the chapters was actually rewritten a few times, and it's when Michael is having his terrible day. Uh, so originally, they have this compass. It has all these little knobs on it. They go around the world in the afternoon. Uh, so Travers wrote this. Uh, it's... 1934. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and she is racially stereotyping a lot. She was called on it and with some assistance, Bad Tuesday was 
revised um, to make it less you know, stereotypy. Um, and then it was revised again to change the, the, the people into animal icons. Uh, so the racism is more codified. So unfortunate racism was involved. Uh, and it's kind of interesting that later on, uh, Travers did travel quite extensively. And I don't know, it's, it's, it's an interesting conversation of, well, do you forgive her because she's dealing with a fairly narrow understanding of the world when she wrote it and was quick to take criticism when normally she was not? I, I kind of want to be a little bit forgiving for her. I don't think we can judge things in the past with our present pair of spectacles. Right. That's, you know, a thing that I heard once. Um, you have to judge it by what it was. And then you can look at and that's not to excuse bad behavior, um, but it is but to put, put it into a context. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, what I, was funny is I was reading the book and, it, and it, that chapter is called Bad Tuesday Revised. And so I was like, where's like, and so because this book has magic in it, I thought, oh, this is cool. We're going to relive the same day twice, maybe. <laughs> no, did not happen. I was a little disappointed. Um, I, I do want to talk about the movie, but I, I, there are other things in the book that I want to talk about because I feel like there are some really interesting little stories and because it was social criticism and because it was kind of meant for a, a wider audience like i okay I, I referenced it in my recap there's alfred who's the dog who lives next door and he yeah. is babied and 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 like he sleeps on silk pillows and the woman is like oh my god you're my baby and i love you and i'm gonna take care of you and like overindulgent and yada 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 and this poor dog is like sick of it and then he makes friends quote unquote friends with another dog who's like from the wrong side of the tracks and they have like this friendship and pretty much with the help of Mary Poppins interpreting um Alexander is that his name Alexander yeah yep, Alexander he's like look lady owner lady you have to accept me and my wrong side of the tracks dog friend or I'm gonna run away and I could not help but see this as like a parenting thing um because the whole book is about parents right um, you know how sometimes your kids like different kinds of music than you would want them, or they are a different religion than you would, or they're religious at all, or, you know, or they're gay and, and you're, you know, bigoted, or they're this, or they're that, or they're whatever. And like, sometimes the most important thing is that you love them no matter what, right? You know, and like, you have to work on accepting. And she tries to like, accept like, oh, no, okay, I'll let you come back and I'll let that dog come with you. But that dog has to sleep outside. He's like, nope, that dog's sleeping on my silk pillow in my bedroom, you know, like... There it is. And so I just, I really liked that as a, as a little vignette, as a little story. I, I... It's also the, the, the theme of classism because Mary Poppins is not classist. Right. You know, her friends are, you know, the matchstick guy. But, yes. And that's the whole thing with Andrew is the kids are looking at Andrew going, oh, he's this pumpered. Andrew, little... I said Alexander during my little thing, but you're oh. right. Yes, Andrew. Oh. Yes, the dog Andrew. Yes. Yeah, so Andrew's this pampered little thing, and they're, they're very judgy about it, but Andrew has no way to communicate that he doesn't like this. He's kind of stuck in the same sort of prison that um, a lot of people who are born in a classist society are. Right, right. And then, I mean, thankfully, Andrew uses his privilege to uh, take care of his friend. <laughs> Which is the resp good responsible thing to do when you have privilege is to use it to help others. But I also, I mean, and then there was the, the whole thing with the cow. Like, and I already told that story. I'm not going to tell it again. But like this idea about how, you know, you're you're happy 
and then you are exposed to something else and you're like, well, damn, like this is scary and threatening and I don't like it. And so then maybe you go to like extreme strength, you know, lengths to get rid of that. And then it's gone and then you're back into your quote unquote normal regular life. And you're like, wait a minute, like this isn't good. And now I've been exposed to something else. And now maybe I want more of that. And I, I know we're recording this during the pandemic. I cannot help but think that this is so prescient because we had our normal life. Then we had this pandemic and everything is different and everybody's freaking out. But there's a little part about the idea of going back to quote unquote normal where like there were no good social nets, um, safety nets, where, you know, people who have essential jobs are getting paid crap wages, where there's no medical coverage for so many people, where it's so obvious that corruption is killing people. Like, is that a normal we really want to go back to? And I'm I'm getting a little political and I'm sorry, but I just I well, found it's, it's a way of exposing the holes when you're in a comfortable situation and growth is not comfortable. Mm hmm. Yeah, I just I found that that cow story interesting. Like and and okay, so I didn't say it in the recap. The way it's couched in the story is that Jane, I think it's or Michael, they see this cow out on the street, like come up to the gate as if it's coming to visit. And Mary Poppins is like, oh yeah, that cow. She's a friend with my mom, and I don't want to talk to her. Blah blah blah. And they're like, well, how do you know a cow? And so then she tells the story. And the cow's like obviously wandering the earth, like looking for a star which is like kind of sad and kind of hopeful all at the same time. And freaking though, the, 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 the framing device of the cow story is that Mary Poppins does not have time for her. <laughs> it's like, oh, you're on a quest, whatever. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it certainly does throw in the face that uh, practically perfect in every way. There's a lot of really sad touches to these stories like we were talking about the twins which were completely cut out of the movie and they have magical powers and they can talk to birds and the bird is kind of a, a jerk but then when the twins lose their ability to talk to them there's the bird going oh oh that's that's sad yeah. even though he knows it was going to happen and the fact that like you gain your teeth and then you lose your ability to communicate with the wind and the sun and the birds and Oh my gosh. It, yeah. And, and the whole idea too, I mean, and, and that one, you had the, the mother come in and she's like, oh, it's, you know, she's trying to make the baby feel better and whatever. And like totally missing what the baby actually wants and needs in that moment. And, you know, that's sad and, and so true because your kids, they are upset. And there's sometimes you have like no way of knowing why or how to fix it. And then sometimes they get they get language and then they explain that they've been screaming for about 33 minutes because their socks are on the wrong feet. Because apparently that's a thing that can bother you when you're, you know, 18 months. <sighs> She'll never live that down, is my point. But my point... <laughs> <laughs> well, it's now immortalized on our podcast. Yes. So, yeah, like there's all these beautiful... Like, there's these weird little twinges. Then you had the whole thing with the zoo. The kids go to the zoo, but it's all backwards. So the animals are on the outside and there's people on the inside and like they're feeding the people and they're like kind of mocking them like now do a trick and do a thing and blah, blah, blah. You know, so you'll get food and and definitely has these um, classist and class issue overtones. And yeah, for sure. I it was interesting. Yeah, really wonderful moments about empathy, which 
is kind of funny coming from this character who doesn't have time for a lot of it, but yet the stories do have those those kind of themes running through them. But it's not Mary Poppins who's having empathy. She's like just there. Do you know what I mean? Like oh, but it, the story does. Right, exactly. Exactly. And so it's almost as if well, I mean the book is about her because she's in all of them, but like in the twin story, she's just kind of there on the periphery, you know? Um the cow story, she's not involved. She's just she knows this cow, so she's telling the story, but uh, she's not the one who's showing empathy to the kids. Like the empathy is just happening. And I, it's, it's very interesting. And then of course you've got a star falls from the sky. You got the old lady and her huge daughters and they're, you know, making gingerbread cookies that are actual star. I mean, it's just, it goes on and on and on. And there is a lot of beautiful moments and vignettes. And there definitely are some messages about empathy and about time and about, love but it just gets overshadowed with because the book is literally called mary poppins and mary poppins is the worst character in this book there is some definite irony in there where you have this character who is such a kind of cantankerous woman and the stories have very different things to say about the world so i i kind of like that in in writing of you know she may be the titular character but she's not the bastion of wisdom. She's not that perfect person that you're never going to be able to emulate that you kind of wish you could. She's not aspirational, but she's very interesting. And for uh, an author who was so dead set against sentimentality, there is a lot of whimsy in the stories. Mm -hmm. So the, the contradictions are really fascinating to look at. So the other thing that I, I just, I'm so sorry, I got to just go back to this freaking cow story again. The cow story to me is an allegory for Katie Nana. Okay. And I mean, it's for a lot of things, but also I really saw the parallels here. So the kids did not like Katie Nana because she, this is how in the book, she's old and fat and smelled of barley water. Like, okay. Um, maybe barley water is, is, is awful. Sure. But being old and fat for a nanny, I sounds perfect for me. Sorry. Like if I'm going to sit in someone's lap on a rocking chair, I want them kind of around the bend and maybe with a nice soft bosom to lay my head. Whatever. That's a Kaylee thing. <laughs> Point is old and fat and smelling of barley water does not seem like the, like she doesn't say she was a bad nanny. Like she wasn't mean, like just old fat and smelled bad. Okay, fine. So then they get Mary Poppins. She's not old and fat. Um, She looks nice. You know, she's, She's rather, she's okay, and she's very vain, of course, but she's she's polished, whatever. She's also cruel and snippy, but she's got this magic. So it's kind of like they can put up with walking around on eggshells and never knowing when she's about to, like, freaking snap at them or, or you know, or it, it's freaking abusive. Like, they don't know if she's going to be like, let's have a magical adventure, or she's going to be like, you guys are awful trash humans and, like, go to your room. I mean, it's so... The first, like, adventure that she has is her day off. It's not hanging out with the children. Yeah. It's going to visit her friend Bert. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're not so, even involved in the whole chalk picture painting aspect. Ah. Anyways. Okay. So, that's the book. <laughs> so, it's got its good points. It's it's really different. Um, and Travers is such an interesting character on her own. I don't know if you want to talk about her or if you want to save that a little I bit. I want to save that. I, yeah. Okay. We... All right. So I'm going to segue into the movie here with something that 
I didn't realize at first until I was looking at the movie again in the book, Poppins and Mrs. Banks have a lot of dialogue in the movie. I don't think they say a single word to each other. Yeah, I'm like racking my brain now. But no, not really. It's much well. It's, yeah. it's much more because it's all Mr. Banks. It's Mr. Banks. It becomes much more about Mr. Banks, and he becomes he has a he has a character arc in the movie, where he was barely even in the book. Like he was referenced. Nobody has a character arc in the book. In the movie, Mr. Banks has a pretty major character arc. Oh yeah. You uh, say he's so kind of the only one who does really, but like this is this is Disney at you know the top of his game. This is a really really well done film mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you can see where you know as problematic as disney can be especially nowadays this is still a really top level storyteller who knows what to emphasize you know what to kind of combine what to sort of trim away and what i thought was really interesting so the book came out in the 30s and it's about british middle class people in the 30s the movie is made in the 60s but they didn't paint they didn't set it in the 30s and they didn't set it in the 60s. They went all the way back to 1910. And it can't just be for the grand line of, it's great to be an Englishman in 1910. King Edward's on the throne. It's the age it's of the men. Age no. of men. Yes, it's so, just it, awesome. And then, then we get to build in like the suffragette because Mrs. Banks is a suffragette. Well, and that's kind of the thing with the novel is the novel actually takes place 20 years before it was published. I don't know. I don't think it could be said in, in 1914. I don't think there were, but were there buses in 1914? Yes. Yes. Uh, late 1800s, there were buses. Okay. Well, maybe that's where I'm confused, but it just really didn't feel like so, an Edwardian England book. It felt much more of, of like the There 30s. were experimental steam buses in 1930s, but harsh legislation in 1861 virtually eliminated mechanically propelled robot until the law was changed in 1896. So, yeah, in the late 1800s, I've, I remember reading another book, and it had omnibuses, and it was placed in, like, 1896. Okay. Well, then so, I, steam buses in 1830s, and then motorized buses in 1903. Well, then, there you go. I guess we'll leave it how it was originally. I'll do my research. Well, <laughs> teasing, teasing. Okay. Point still stands. <laughs> <laughs> No, I mean, seriously, like when they made the adaptation, they could have made it present day in the 60s. They could have put in the 30s when it was published. They could have put it in the pre-30s time vaguely where it kind of was sort of set. They very, it's a big choice to make it into 1910 and make Mrs. Banks a suffragette, right? Yes. Yes. And I think that that adds to like the idea of parenting again because in the 60s I think what you were referencing before when parents became everybody's friend I think that started in like the 70s or the 80s right yes. okay yeah, that was, uh, so like Dr. Spock. But, but in the 60s you, you were having like kind of the kickback against the 1950s which was at least in American culture I don't know so much about British but it was very much the the you know that June Cleaver thing right so we're we're pushing back against that the 60s are a period of upheaval but we're not it, it almost feels like they're making a connection does that make sense whereas in 1910 and the 60s would have certain things in common where there is this pushing back against the 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 kind of patriarchal household setup that had been the norm for a while and there's changes afoot 
and the sense of identity, especially when it comes to money and when it comes to how things are done the proper way. Mr. Banks and Mrs. You know, in the book, Mrs. Banks is very concerned about what people think. In the movie, it's definitely more Mr. Banks who's very concerned about what people think. And but that's also based on his livelihood. And I think that that gives the movie a lot of um, weight into what it's trying to say and what it does with his character. So I took her suffragette, uh, especially as a child, to be satirical. You know, they're making fun of the suffragette movement, and they're both very distant and disconnected. They're, they're set in their lives. And to kind of go back to the cow story, they think they're pretty happy until they have this upheaval that makes them very uncomfortable and learn that maybe that's not where their happiness lies. But that's their, their growth and development. But certainly as a child, she was not played as this was a great thing to be. You know, I when disagree. She gives up the suffragette that at the end, like the family becomes cohesive. As an no, adult, no, no, no. Wait, her. no. Pause. She doesn't give up being a suffragette at the end of the movie. No, that... but she she uses the suffragette thing for the kite tail. Yes, she m- finds a way to marry the idea of her suffragette aspect, her political aspirations, and in the first part of the movie, she says, put these things away. You know how the, the upsets, you know, the cause upsets Mr. Banks. So she's doing her thing. She's fighting the power. She has no power in her in her house. He talks over her. She, I think, if anything, when she's like, oh, you're so smart, honey. You're so smart. That's the joke. The joke is that she's like, okay, fine, you do it. Go ahead. You do it. You're so smart. And then he does it and whatever. At the end, when she pulls out, she's like, a proper kite needs a proper tail. And she brings out and he's like, very good. And they attach it. So I think like what we're getting from that is that there's going to be more peace in the family. He's making room in his heart that things will change because the whole point of his song is that it's great to be an Englishman in 1810. King Edward's on the throne. It's the age of man. I'm the lord of my castle, the sovereign, the liege. I treat my subjects, wife and children, with a firm but gentle lead. It's 602 and the heirs to my dominion. On and on and on. My point is that he sees the world in this very black and white way. She is struggling against that. And at the end, his mind has been open. He's becoming more expansive. He's willing to accept that the world is different and that things can change. And her adding the suffragette tale to the kite is very symbolic of bringing those two worlds together. And the family as a family unit is going out to fly a kite as a cohesive group. It's freaking beautiful. And I don't think Winifred was supposed to be a joke at all. As a child, I definitely looked up to her. Her song is amazing. Aww. She freaking shows her bloomers as as a point of <gasps> protest. Yeah, the little shriek. <laughs> yes, you know, and she talks about like the other ladies, you know, being clapped in irons and all of these things. Like it's, it's real. And it's, of course, it's in a fluffy, goofy, magic-y, happy movie, but she's talking about some real stuff and her, her angst is very real. So no, I'm, I'm, here's a hill and I'm dying on it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So I'm just going to say my interpretation as a child. Um, and to be fair, the reason they made her a suffragette is because they kind of needed a reason for her not to be around the children. And again, it's COVID and I'm hearing a lot of pain from parents who are having to homeschool and that brings back you know it is not easy being a housewife and having to take care of the house and your children um it's definitely not easy if you're an essential worker and still having to compound all this uh so 
It's a lot easier if you have servants. <clears throat> it is, but that's kind of the thing is how many people would love to have a governess just to get a little bit of a break for their sanity now? And at the time, it, it, it seems a little bit odd to me. Uh, if we had higher expectations or more unrealistic expectations that, you know, oh, well, the woman can do it all. She can do this and that, and it's no problem. Whereas now we're going, you know, that's but, but I'm sorry, really not fair. We didn't have those expectations in Edwardian England. Like, it no, was it was uh, totally so, normal for there to be a governess and there to be a cook and a maid and the wife who would be doing usually just social shit. Like, they didn't have to make her a suffragette. She could just be a bridge-playing socialite. They, you know what I mean? Like, But you're also making this movie for an audience in 1960s. Right. So there, that's one of their conceits to a 1960s audience who would not understand, you know, 1930, 1910 sort of class rules. I disagree. I think that that is um, shortchanging 1960s audiences. I think the reason she's a suffragette is because, again, the idea of this family upheaval is mirrored in the Edwardian period and in the 60s, where there's so much change and where the family unit is going through some major major changes and what is and isn't acceptable in terms of relationships and what are like long-term goals i mean we have mary poppins who's definitely single has bert but is definitely single she doesn't there's no um ending where they kiss under their umbrella and like that's the happy ending like so you already have this woman who's kind of bucking the system she's not an ugly old fat barley water nanny you know governess she's beautiful she's well spoken she's articulate and she's magical like it's definitely wish fulfillment but i think that those are the reasons i don't think it was necessary to make her a suffragette because people in the 60s wouldn't understand why she wasn't spending time with her children. That is the official reason why Disney did it. So just, just saying. Okay, but we're that's not... the official reason. I'm just saying that it didn't need to be. <laughs> it works on all the levels to have her be that for all those reasons that I have said like six times. Yeah, yeah, and I, I get to. I'm just saying uh, from my perspective as a child, it felt like she was just as disengaged she did seem very oblivious to what was going on in her family agree and at the end it's the compromise that makes the family come together so mr banks is not going to be all about the bank um his wife is melding her personality a little bit more into the family yes so she's not doing her own thing um and as an adult i do like the suffragette song i I do really love that stuff, where as a kid, I thought it was a little bit more of a joke. Okay, well, if that's the official reason, then I guess it was Walt Disney who wasn't giving audiences in the 1960s the benefit of the doubt. Because honestly, like, we don't need shit spoon-fed to us, and it works on all the levels, and it's freaking great. I understand as a kid that you might not have, I don't know, appreciated it or liked it or whatever, but I do think that it was important and... Like you said, it, it, at the end, they all kind of came together, and I thought it worked really, really well. So. Well, I also hope I don't hold the opinions I did as a child, and that I have learned something after <laughs> you know, a couple decades. Yes. So, yeah, that was my interpretation as a child, and that's why as an adult I go, huh, wow, I didn't see that. Yeah, as a kid, I definitely... Um, kind of glossed over Mr. Banks, like, feeling like he, you know, had wasted 
certain parts of his life and that he wasn't connected with his kids and how that made him sad. And I was just like, oh, this is the boring part where Bert and Mr. Banks talk for a couple minutes. And then don't worry, we're going to get to the kite part soon and Mrs. Banks is going to come back. <clears throat> you know, again, as an adult, I have so much appreciation for that. Yeah. You know, when Bert sits the kids down and says, have you thought about this, that your father's going through this and that kind of teaching moment of empathy. Yeah. And, you know, when he has to walk to the bank and it's contemplative and reflexive or reflective and you have the music swelling over it, it's, it's really beautifully done. It is. It is. And it's, and you know, he's talking about his, their father being in a, a different kind of cage and there's all kinds of cages and, you know, people get trapped in things and yeah, for sure. It was so well done. So I, again, and as a child, Okay, I, I just didn't want to like Mr. Banks. I was like, why is Bert, you know, giving his his side? But it it is it is those really important teaching moments. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <sighs> Again, the adaptation is done so well. <laughs> Yeah. telling a different story <laughs> it's like the best version of fanfic you're like you know what would be cool is if in mary poppins she was actually nice bert was a bigger deal we had a character arc with the dad and some songs <laughs> well you know there is something to be said about collaborative storytelling i don't think editors get nearly enough credit for all the work that they do you know, a writer kind of puts a thing together and the editor is the person who helps shape the play. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So there are some really fun little things here. Like I had no idea Dick Van Dyke was the president of the bank. Oh, no Mr. Dawes? Whatsoever. Yeah. Double casting there. Yeah, I knew that as a kid. It... Yeah, yeah, as a kid I didn't know it. And when I was watching it again, I didn't pick up on it. It wasn't until I was reading more about the film I went, Really? So apparently Dick Van Dyke was just kind of like clowning around on the set and doing all these pratfalls and stuff. And they thought, you know what, he'll do really well as, you know, this guy. He's able to do that sort of physical comedy. The kids had no idea that the guy, the old guy in the makeup was Dick Van Dyke. And they were worried he was going to die <laughs> during the scenes. <laughs> I like that they increased... Bert's role for the movie and that he was like this jack of all trades and you know he's got like five different jobs and in the movie and he's awesome yeah otherwise it would have just been too large a cast so he, he has his own sort of magic yeah yeah it's definitely there's some hints too um one of the things that is so lovable about Bert and especially the chimney sweeps is that they're really happy-go-lucky you know, when it comes to, you know, them entering the house and they see uh, Mrs. Banks come home and they're like, votes for women. And they just march with her and they're all cool with it. They're super chill. It's the master. <laughs> Step in time. <laughs> they're just, at that point, they're going to repeat anything. That's that's mob mentality. Whatever you okay, shout. But they, is... there were just four of them and they kind of brought her in and they did the little march and the rest of them are dancing around and doing their own thing. Uh, so some history that's really kind of dark. Uh, the reason why it was good luck to shake a chimney sweep's hand is in Victorian England, chimney sweeps are usually orphans. And they did not live very long. They died of black lung. Edwardian England or Victorian England? Victorian England. So this is Edwardian England. It's a little bit later. But chimney sweeps 
uh, were still very short-lived. So that was the reason why it was lucky to shake their hand is because they don't have their entire life's worth of luck. It is really dark. Oh my god, that's not dark. That's fucked up. You're about to die. Shake my hand because your little bit of life, I'm going to steal some more of your life. What the hell? That's like people go into like the cancer war and they're like, oh, look at these losers laying around. Oh my god. Are you going to eat that jello? You're not going to eat that jello. I know the chemo's made you really sick, so I'll just help you. <laughs> yeah, um, if you've ever read Water Babies, it's a Victorian novel about a child who dies because he was a chimney sweep, and he was like 12 at the time, and then he goes on this magical adventure when he's dead. Yeah, uh, they keep bringing that up in book club, and I keep being like, yeah, no, that's not... Yeah, it's, it's an unusual novel. It doesn't feel like a children's but, you know, that's a digression. Uh, yeah, so happy chimney sweeps. Or, you know, that's that's kind of a... Now as the a, ladder of life has been strung, you might think a sweep's on the bottom has rung. Well, you'd be right, because they'll all die soon. So shake their <laughs> hands and feel good about you. You're not a chimney sweep. You'll live for a regular amount of time. Yes, basically. Good to know. Uh, yeah, if that doesn't run the, the scene for you. I like it's it. It's one though. of my favorite scenes in the movie. I love the kineticness of it all. It's silly and I love fun. how Mary Poppins comes out of the chimney and then freaking puts suit on her face with her makeup thing. <laughs> she makes yeah. her face even darker. <laughs> you know, and this is this is the thing that got me about the movie is it's it's incredibly well done. So when Mr. Banks comes home and his mouth is open, that's such an old joke, but it made me laugh every time. Mm -hmm. I, I was watching this multiple times just because it was like, wow, this is way more engaging than I remember. The only, okay, so we have to say, there's, there is a part of the movie which I feel went too long, and it is part of the animated thing. I could have, because they, they, they walk around, then they're on a carousel. Oh, sorry. They walk around. Then they're at the little restaurant. And then they go for more of a walk. And then there's like a barnyard. And then there's the kids on a carousel. And then they're riding around. And then there's a fox hunt. And then there's a horse race. And then there's... Oh, my God. Like, seriously. They could have made that half as long. Maybe a third. I would have been just as happy. So yeah, that did go on fairly long for me as well. And I think they were just having a lot of fun with some of the new tricks that they were doing. Oh yeah. It's, so yeah, combining animation and live action. Uh, if you get a chance to look at, you know, Dick Van Dyke doing his little dance, he's, I think they called it like a sodium treatment or a, something like that. Uh, he's in front of a black screen and then they're penciling in the penguins trying to make that all happen. So yeah, it does go on a little bit too long, but they're also just kind of having fun with the technology that they I don't have. Begrudge them. I'm just saying, like that personally is the, probably the low point of the movie for me is the length of the animated hippily wibbly stuff. So, I mean, when the movie's so good, and I, I just, I love the songs. I love them so much. I love the Bird Lady song. I love the Go to Sleep song. I love the Mr. Banks song. I love Mrs. Banks song. I love the Shagoon Full of Sugar song. I, I just everything is so. It's just good. Um, there are a couple songs that are actually based on old 
older English music, and they just kind of updated the lyrics and updated the style a bit. Yeah, yeah, and there's a whole there's a whole freaking Wikipedia article about all the different songs and the music, and there's songs that didn't make it in, and there's songs that got adapted, and songs that got combined, and um, all sorts of stuff. So if you're if... yeah, it's a great score, and it melts together really, really well. Yeah, definitely. Uh, some of the little technology bits are that were cute. They would tell the kids, they wouldn't tell them what was going on. They would just say, just react to what's happening. So Mary Poppins comes in and her pulling all the stuff out of the bags and the kids going, oh, that was a genuine reaction from the kids. Oh, I don't which like. Which is kind of cute. See, you say cute. I don't like that kind of trivia because that is like a natural reaction is not acting. And um, I paid my money to watch actors do acting, not people just to have natural responses because that's reality TV. So grumble, grumble. I know, but sometimes they do that. Uh, so Die Hard, they didn't tell Alan Rickman like when he was going to drop. They dropped him like a second ahead. So when you see his face, he's just like, what? Yeah, I know. I, I know. And they did that in Schindler's List, too. They've done it. It's a thing that they do. And I personally find it super creepy and bad form. So that's my opinion. I think if I got hired to be an actor and then they actually played, like, did something to get my natural reaction, like, they did it in Psycho, too. They threw cold water on her. Like, that's just shitty. I'm sorry. Like, if you're not a good enough actress to scream on cue or your director's not getting enough from you, like, harassing you with cold water or... I, that's just not cool. And especially for... I don't... Yeah, whatever. Sorry. I think with children, and this was very innocently done. So when she's... When Mary Poppins is pouring out the medicine... The change of color was something that they had, you know, set up. And so when Jane shrieks, that was a genuine reaction. I don't mind that so much with children, especially when it's not damaging at all. It's just Seri kind of like this little... I mean, okay, that's fine. That's your... You can not mind it. I mind it a lot. They do that kind of stuff. And in this, in the name of that is when, like, in Stranger Things, they have one, they have two children actors and they tell the boy, kiss her because we want her natural reaction to being kissed. And then they film it, and that's her first kiss, and she didn't get to say anything about it. So I feel like when we're like, oh, yeah, it's fine when we, like, play little pranks on kids, and we get natural reactions from kids, and we do stuff because we think it's innocent and cute. Mm, people are going to take that in a bad way, so maybe we just don't do that would be my preference. That's why I add the caveat, it's not damaging. Mm -hmm. Having kind of a rapey kiss is damaging. Yeah. That's not cool. Well, and who so, knows? You know, maybe having just, like, a, a medicine bottle change colors and go, oh, that was unexpected. Mm -hmm. That's not a big deal to me the first kiss is that's gross anyways um but thank so, you for the trivia <laughs> you want to hear another really sad bit of trivia <laughs> do i oh do i so do i yeah who was the actor who played the boy michael the boy who played michael unfortunately died really young he died at the age of 21 hmm so he was in India, contracted a disease, and by the time he got back to England, his liver, or he had, uh, he died of pancreatitis. So that's just kind of sad because he was, you know, he had all this potential. The girl who played his sister, she went on to do some acting. She eventually retired. These two did three films together. They were a really good little team of actors. And when there's so much child exploitation that we find out went on with child actors, it's kind of nice to see that that wasn't the case here. I have nothing to add to that. You're right. The bar is really fucking low, and when kids don't get exploited, it's a good thing. <laughs> well, considering, you know, it's the 1960s, that would have been super easy to do. And there were issues with that, you know, up until even, you know, 10, 15 years ago. 
And then we all know that um, Julie Andrews went on Sand of Music and all sorts of other wonderful things. And Dick Van Dyke was obviously Dick Van Dyke. Had his own show. Don't know if you know. Uh, had this yep. really catchy title. The Dick Van Dyke Show. Yes. <laughs> so Dick Van Dyke has been ripped greatly for his, his Cockney accent. It, it's been rated as one of the worst accents ever to be tried in a film. Uh, he did have somebody who was a voice coach, but that voice coach was Irish and <laughs> couldn't do it either. <laughs> so his voice coach was completely wrong for the whole thing. Oh my god. We need you to ride a horse, so we got you a horse riding coach. It's a guy who breeds dogs. It's totally the same. They have four legs. People like them. It's Why won't this work? That's hilarious. You know, as a kid, talking about kids, I was like, that's how British people talk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's totally Cockney. Yeah. yeah. Or whatever. I didn't. I don't think I ever thought Cockney. I thought... Poor people talk like Bert, and rich people talk time. like Mr. Banks. Step and crime. It sounds like he was eating coffee when he was saying that. Step and crime. Yeah, Dick Van Dyke had no dancing experience, and so when you look at the chimney swing scenes, he does a really amazing job. They practice for, I think, like six weeks, and he does some rolls. He you know, does jumps and leaps and all this stuff. So he caught on really really quickly and did some amazing stuff in this film that he doesn't get enough credit for yeah i never would have known that he wasn't trained as a dancer yeah so it, it always bothered me as a child though at the very beginning when he's doing his like one-man band and he's got like the horn on his shoulder and like the accordion and da, 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 da. and like you see his hands and he's got the accordion and he's got the thing and then like the camera comes in and he hits himself in, a, in the face with a symbol and i was always like where was that symbol <laughs> <laughs> like, how did he just pull it out? <laughs> but also, I mean, just like a little throwback to the book at when he's talking to all the people, like the dog Andrew is definitely in the movie. It's just teeny tiny and like only has like, like is the one who tells Mary Poppins that weird old uncle whoever stuck on the ceiling, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, you know, but, he, but the, the character has the same name. So that's kind of fun. And then like when Bert is singing his songs, Mrs. Corey and her two daughters are there. And of course, that's a throwback to characters in the book. So, I mean, they had these little tiny Easter eggs. And I don't know if you know this, Jennifer, but an Easter egg is a thing in a film where they put a little thing in just so that if you know it, what it means, then you know what it means. And um, Ready Player One had one or two of those, which is the podcast that... I thought you hated those. <laughs> I do. Since I do. we did have a bit of a discussion about that, maybe before, yes. if I recall. Yes. So, another little fun thing is the entire film was made indoors. It's all inside sound studios. Hmm. It, the street scene where they're outside on Cherry Tree Lane and yada yada felt like a sound stage to me. It seemed like it echoed. <laughs> but... Uh, it was cute. Yeah, it's just, you know, how they got the lighting and all that stuff. It's In some ways, it doesn't age particularly well, but at the time, those effects were, you know, top of the line. Yeah. Well, and, and the thing about aging well, like, some things don't age well because they're racist or they're bigots or, you know, they use outdated technology while trying to pretend like they are set in the, you know, contemporary time. This ages fine because it's already a period piece. It was made in the 60s, being about 1910. So, like, it's a period piece. So we don't have to worry about the technology aspect. And there's nothing really 
bad about it. You know, there's, um, I think there is one reference to uh, an ethnic group in a way that we wouldn't say it nowadays. But um, again, for the time. And then other than that, it's, it's a freaking story about, hey, money isn't everything. Spend time with your kids. Magic is cool. And uh, you don't need a man to be happy. Just grab your parrot and float into the sky. So the little racial slur comes around the chimney sweeps. And I didn't. I had no idea. So it's like, oh, that's an odd vocabulary word. Let me look that up. Oh, oh, okay. That's, that's not great. But again, it's... Maybe it's because we have a cultural remove from England when the term was used. It could be in the 1960s, and so it was considered, you know, fairly banal. Or people uh, didn't think people would know what it was. Yeah, it's okay. just like, oh, that's a funny word to call that. Huh. Those, those chimney sweeps. Bollocks <laughs> and bugger and fanny. Oh, those aren't bad words. Those are English words. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, yeah, culture. Culture is fun. Language is fun. All right, so it's it's just a beautifully done film. The editing, the pacing. Um, I agree with you that the, the anime scenes do go on because after a while you're not storytelling anymore. You're just kind of well, this is us showing off our, our little uh, our our tricks, our bag of tricks. But otherwise, it's surprisingly engaging. I will say that the movie is beyond a shadow of a doubt, totally worth your time, even if you have to fast forward through that animated part. It's long, but it's worth it, and it's amazing. The book is short and worth it for a different thing. So it, it is, I think the book is definitely worth your time because it is short and it is accessible. It's not um, overly complex, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an easy read, but it has some really amazing gems in it. It has some really poignant things that happen. And um, even though it's not it's really- imaginative as well. Right. And it's not really about the narrative. It's not really about the story. The book is definitely more vignettes of character studies and like little tiny morality tales um, that you can like little tiny little little bits. And I, I like that. So I'm glad I read the book. I'm glad that yeah, it can lead to some really good discussions. Yeah. Sorry. No, that's OK. I, I'm so my verdict is that they're both worth the time. But for my dollars to donuts for my entertainment value the movie is way more entertaining and way more special and way more amazing and the book is fine and has a lot of really cool stuff in it but it it is what it is so but i love yeah, this movie so 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 so, so, so much to read the book after this understand it is it is very different you are not going to get the same mary poppins but you are going to get an interesting complicated character yeah, or you could just ignore all the Mary Poppins parts of the book and read about the cow and <laughs> Andrew and the, you know, the twins, the twins the and and then, you know, be, be satisfied with that. So. Okay, so thumbs up over here as well. Pages and Popcorn Podcast was brought to you today by patrons like you, as Jennifer said at the top of the show, $1 a month or $5 if you're feeling especially generous helps us to keep making this. And right now we're offering a special for a one-time $25 donation. 
you can be the person who picks the book and movie combo that we promise to read and give and watch and give our utmost attention to. And if you want to record yourself in a three-minute spiel about it, or you want to come on live and talk to us, that's what your $25 can buy you. Also, we are collecting things right now for our community episode, so please feel free to email us, send us voice memos, send us your texts, send us your messages, send us your things on Facebook about what you think about what we're doing and how we can do it better. Sure, why not? And lastly, we are, as we have referenced, recording this during the COVID-19 pandemic. Remember, when you are home, sheltering in place, as you're supposed to be doing, and you're watching Netflix, or you're watching movies, or you're reading books, that all of those things, your escape methods, are brought to you by artists. So please, please, please support your artists. You can support artists on Patreon, like us. A lot of artists have Patreon pages. You can support artists by buying their swag. We have no swag, so this is not about us, but buy their swag, buy their things, donate to causes, vote with your wallet if you have any extra monies to throw at artists, because remember, it's the artists who are making this pandemic livable. I'd also like to throw in that, you know, if you're experiencing financial hard times, which is very understandable, uh, reviews are also wonderful. Uh, if you want to post something on Facebook and just get the word out. That would be fantastic as well. Exactly. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. <laughs> Even though the sound of it is something quite atrocious. If you say it loud enough, you're always sound precocious. Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. I won't do the backwards version. I'm not that nerdy. <laughs> okay, goofball.